Join us this month as we meet some of the interesting people working at the Huntington Library, Art Collections, and Botanical Gardens in San Marino. We visit with Zuha Roshi, an 86th generation Zen master at the newly established Fusho Zen Institute, who uses music as a tool to help understand and realize human potential. And we also talk with Erin Chase, Assistant Curator of Architecture and Photography at the Huntington, about her upcoming jewel box of an exhibition, Architects of a Golden Age, highlights from the Huntington Southern California Architecture Collection, our November bus tour about the show, and the history of the collection, which parallels the rise of the historic preservation movement. So stay tuned. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Herman between South Pass and Highland Park, Grand Central Mark. It is divine. You can't eat the sunshine, but it's a gold mine. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the month of September 2018. This episode are two interviews. Uh, we have two interviews, and they will be with Zuha Roshi. He is an 86th generation Zen master at the newly established Fusho Zen Institute in Pasadena. Zuha uses music as a tool to help understand and realize the human potential. Our second guest curator Erin Chase. She is Assistant Curator of Architecture and Photography at the Huntington, and we are going to talk to her about her upcoming jewel box of an exhibition, Architects of a Golden Age, highlights from the Huntington Southern California Architecture Collection, which also happens to be my November birthday bus tour, which is about the show. Uh, and we'll talk about with her the history of the collection, which parallels the rise of the historic preservation movement. So um, both of our of our interviews took place and are about the Huntington Library and Gardens in San Marino, which is which is one of my favorite places in the entire world. So Kim, the Pishka Maven, do you want to talk to us about the tip jar quickly? I could do that. Hey, I'm shaking the old can. And I'm saying if you like the show and you'd like to contribute to our work, or maybe you'd just like to say thanks for all the hard work we've been doing trying to landmark the L.A. Times, which is time-consuming and thirsty labor, uh, you could certainly throw a little something into our digital tip jar. We're always so grateful for the contributions. They are never obligatory, but very much appreciated. And uh, we thank you for the support. Perfect, Kim. Thank you. Bef- before we, oh, we'll talk about that later. Okay. So, so Kim, let's just let's just jump in into closely watched trains. Um, the first closely watched train is about one of my favorite people in the world, John Gerodo. and John uh, is the sub. Well, so so there's a great article, blog post in Curb a couple weeks back that John was the main focus of. Kim, you look concerned, darling. I hear a dripping sound. The, the microphone can't pick it up, darling. No, I just, just, just what it was. I, 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 the don't, world is dripping around us. Yeah, I think we're making okay. stalactites, but I won't worry about it. Great, D- just don't, don't worry about it. Okay. okay. Uh, so, closely watched trains. Uh, 
John Gerardo, John Gerardo uh, transit-oriented development, and uh, JJ, uh, JJJ, the the voter referendum. So, so there's um, this is a really interesting post. Um, I just, I just want to, I know, it was uncurbed. It's a really interesting post about how. Council District 13 and Council District 4 in particular are using um, recommendations from the planning department to be able to demolish historic older buildings under the guise of, of the planning department's um, direction on, on uh, the voter referendum JJJ, and uh, it's really sad. Well, and what's, what's it, super interesting about it is that the, the council members are saying, oh, well, this is a referendum, this is the rule, we have to do it this way, which actually isn't true. And it's unclear if they're getting that direction from the planning department or if they just, you know, they, they like to make developers happy, so that's the, the angle they've been taking. But I'm so glad Curb looked into it because... You know, if you don't ask these questions and shine a light on it, you look up one day and a whole historic neighborhood has been demolished and you haven't actually replaced any housing stock. Well, you have. You've just replaced housing stock. You've yeah. taken five rent-stabilized, beautiful 1920s apartments and you've replaced them with five non-rent-stabilized, incredibly crummy-looking, out-of-scale modern apartments that no one who lives here can afford. I don't know if that's what the planning department should be doing. Yeah, so so we're so happy that this article came out because I spent a lot of time <laughs> encouraging the editorial staff at Curb to take an interest in this, which I appreciate. Uh, this is a great way for us to then send an email to the planning department and ask them for clarification on the very point which questions which the article raises and we're still waiting to hear back from them. But but you, you got you got to you got to you got you got to you got to you got to have your first foothold, is what I was going to say. You got you got to you got to look up that 500 foot sheer granite wall, and you got to see your first foothold about 20 feet up. And this is our first foothold, and and we'll keep you posted. We're uh, this Hollywood, yeah, yeah, a lot of lot of good stuff. Okay. Hollywood, Hollywood is trouble enough, but now we have to worry about Inglewood. All the woods are in the crosshairs. I'm sorry, Richard, we have to worry about Inglewood. What, That'll what, be next, next episode. What, what's wrong in Inglewood? Oh, they're building a sports stadium, so like, the developers are swooping in and they're tearing everything down. We were just in I Inglewood. I know, I know, I know. Well, I'll keep you posted. All right, um, let's talk about the exhibit Aaron Chase's... Well, we're going to interview her, but let's just let's just put that out. So we want to talk about the exhibit. We're going to do that in the episode, but I see it here on the, the, the list, and well, so I don't let's know just why it's on the list. We can skip that. let's skip it because we're going to just like the whole episode. Okay, I know. my birthday bus is coming up. We'll talk Are about you that. Excited? I'm super excited. All right, Fossilmans, Fossilmans in El Hammer. It's an ice cream <laughs> parlor. It's really great. Um, I go there because it reminds me because the decor reminds me of the the ice cream parlor from the film The Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah, I always like it. But, but there's a problem now because they're remodeling, so it's not going to look like the ice cream parlor from the Royal Tenenbaums anymore. This is actually a, a very interesting and fun problem. So Fossilman's is a, a, a very old San Gabriel Valley family-owned firm, still family-owned. They make really good ice cream. And they used to have a number of ice cream parlors. Now they just have one. Really? Around, yeah. Yeah, now they just have one over on Main Street across from the very cool little bar, J.D., which has some lovely neon. And um, they have the decor of 
all of the ice cream parlors that in the 70s said, Oh, ice cream parlors, we're kind of oldie timey. Let's let's trot out the uh the, the, the waxed mustache and the top hat and the bustle and so it's the it's the nineteen seventies era era of Victorian interior design. Which is awesome. It's awesome, but at the same time, I mean it's it's kind of a I say this with love. It's sort of a half-assed iteration of it. There's not a lot going on. There is a really cute um, flat plastic cartoon figure of a child, a uh, cartoon oldie-timey kid up on the wall that I'm very fond of. But they've announced since it's their centennial coming up, they want to close for a few days, a few days, just a few days, in order to redesign their space. And what they want to do is make this 1970s Victorian interior it's it's a very small space it's actually they uh, make their ice cream on site so the ice cream parlor section is fairly small in the building that isn't that large to begin with and by the time they reopen a few days hence i don't know if the family's doing this or if they actually have like an architect or an interior designer consultant i mean it's really fast work they're gonna look more like 1941 which is when this particular parlor opened and 41 is definitely in the spirit of that little section of Main Street in Alhambra. So I'm, I'm hopeful. And uh, just it's going to be fine. I, I know it's going to be they fine. And I'm sure they'll keep the cute little kid. And uh, what they've always had, which didn't reflect the 70s Victoriana, is they had these glass cases along the wall containing memorabilia from the family's business and giant glass jars filled with penny candy. Those may or may not survive. But... Um, just a little feedback from social media because people were flipping out. Um, <laughs> somebody chimed in and said, I don't like how it smells there. I hope it smells better. I've never noticed it smelling bad, but then I, I mentioned to my sister, oh, they're changing Alham- uh, they're changing Fossilman's, and she's like, oh, that's good because I always have to like think, do I want to be in that depressing space? So I guess some people really have responded to it negatively. You, you dig it. I, I like it just fine. You don't, you, you're happy when I bring home a quart of ice cream, a pint, a pint. Yeah, yeah, because you know you you brought home that really nice uh, black walnut ice cream. It was amazing. Yeah. They make good ice cream. Okay, move. so here's to them. A hundred years. They're they're still sticking around. They're trying to keep it keep it real. I love it. And uh, and, and you, their and their pop up in Grand Central Market is going to happen any day. <laughs> they were being harassed by the business. Uh, the business advocates, the business improvement people out of downtown for years. Open in downtown, open in downtown. And we went in one time and said, what's with those downtown people always talking about you? And they're like, we're not going to do that. I wish they'd stop calling. <laughs> so, uh, but no, one thing I'd just like to add, if you've never been to Fossilman's, the ice cream's excellent. You've probably had it around yeah. town at other places because people do recognize it as being really good. And I love that they have stayed very cognizant of the changes in the San Gabriel Valley. A lot of the old-time businesses in that part of the world have not stuck around because they haven't been able to really stick, you know, stay stay relevant. But if you go into Fossilman's, you'll probably find about 100 flavors, including some flavors inspired by the immigrant community from all across the Asian parts of the world. And I think that's really nice. And, and you know, when I go in there, I'm still going to get coffee ice cream, but I'm glad they have ube ice cream. Okay, thank you, Kim. All right, so so our next two closely watched trains, one is an uh, a, an opinion piece by Alan Hess, our good friend, about why William Pereira's 1973 addition to Times Mirror Square is important as part of the larger complex, and the immediate next closely watched train is the fact that our 
Historic Cultural Monument application for the City of Los Angeles, Times Mirror Square, has successfully cleared the Cultural Heritage Commission and is about 40 days away from its hearing in planning and land use management. If this application clears planning and land use management, plum. plum, I'm going to say plum, plum, planning, land use management. Yeah, yeah, if it clears plum, that's it. We did it. So, Bob's um, we, Bob, Bob's your, Bob's uncle. your uncle, Bob's your uncle. Um, so we're looking forward to that. Um, we have a lot of work to do to get there. And so Kim, why don't you yeah. take Alan's op-ed and I'll just give a little update about Plum. Which I guess I just did, but I'll elaborate. Well, uh, Alan Hess is an amazing advocate for the importance of the Pereira. I mean, it's one thing to bring people out who worked at Times Mirror Square and worked in the 1973 Pereira edition or the Chandler Wing under Otis Chandler to talk about just what an incredible time that was in Southern California media. And it, it's actually super depressing to think about what Los Angeles lost when the Chandler family board chose to sell out and didn't sell locally, even though apparently the offers were comparable. They chose to sell to these people from Chicago who really did not care about Los Angeles and who then sold the newspaper and its holdings to Sam Zell, who's a psycho, and he dragged it into the dirt and spit on it and jumped up and down on it. And at the end of the day, you've got this shell of a, of a newspaper empire, these beautiful, important buildings, right Kitty corner from City Hall, and then the Times itself got purchased and, and moved away. And so it's one thing to get people who were in that golden era of the times to talk about what it was like. And anyone who cares about Los Angeles, as sad as it is, gets excited and thinks this is worth preserving because really important things happened here. And this was the last glittering moment of this really important uh, landscape-changing, region-changing family business. But Alan can talk about why the building works so well integrating within the historic framework of the Kaufman Art Deco building, which it it, it they connect like a habit trail. And um, people look at the Pereira building without Alan's uh, narration, and they think, oh, God, this looks like everything I think about about a 70s office park. It's brown, and it's shiny, and it's impenetrable. Well, they've never been inside because they didn't work for Otis Chandler and they didn't see these beautiful Zen interiors. We're back to Zen. Yeah, we're so I, I, I have a way to think about this building. And I want you to imagine you've never had an avocado before. And someone puts this lumpy, black, warty, heavy, misshapen egg in your hand and says inside is something wonderful. And you wouldn't believe them, but if you cut it open and you put a little bit of lime juice and a little salt, you'd have guacamole and you'd be happy. And, uh, and, a, and a fried piece of tortilla. A fried piece of tortilla would be good. Alan Hess has the ability to take people into the building through his narration and to contextualize it. I was so sorry that we didn't have the opportunity to take the Cultural Heritage Commissioners on a tour of the building with people who could speak to its history and its architectural significance, but you know, we do the best we can. Ani Group, the property owner, didn't want anyone inside. I understand why they didn't, because when people see it, they get it. And they don't just say, hey, Otis Chandler did really cool stuff here. They say, wow, William Pereira looked at this project 
and made some incredibly smart decisions that are so far beyond what are being proposed now for this redevelopment that maybe we should go back to the drawing board and try a little harder and use 500% uh, more brain power because just sticking a couple of glass boxes on the site doesn't tell a story. And Pereira did. And so Alan continues to advocate, and this op-ed appears in the Architects newspaper, so it's being read widely. And I know that the architectural community, who are always trying to make the best buildings in the moment with the materials of the time, doesn't want to hear that one of the greatest architects of the 1970s work is totally valueless, because they're looking 50 years into the future and thinking, I don't want this to happen to me. So here we are, looking back at Pereira, and actually seeing him instead of being just reactionary. And uh, I will simply point out one more thing before I pass it over to you, Richard, for all the negativity that happens online. And I know that up in Capitol Hill, you know, our congressmen and, and, and senators say they want to hear what the public has to say. But sometimes it's really easy for the public to just say something obnoxious on the Internet and move on. The only people who showed up at that hearing made an effort to be there at City Council and or at the Cultural Heritage Commission in City Hall and speak for this project one way or the other were people who really care about the buildings and want the integrity to be retained. The only negative voices that were raised at all were those of the property developer um, and their hired architectural consultant, Teresa Grimes, who said that, based on her research, uh, William Pereira didn't actually even design this building which uh, is sort of the birther argument, uh, didn't go over very well with the Cultural Heritage Commission, and it really reminded me of our first big experience at the Cultural Heritage Commission in 2007, when we were involved with helping out getting um, Charles Bukowski's wonderful little bungalow in East Hollywood landmarked, the place where he wrote Post Office, the place where he quit the Post Office and became a professional writer, and the property owner showed up there and said, you can't landmark this building, Charles Bukowski is a, he's a famous Nazi. And the, <laughs> the then president of the Cultural Heritage Commission said, I've read everything he's written, and I think if he was a Nazi, almost I'd... Every, I mean, almost all, everything. All his major works. And, and I think if he was a Nazi, I'd know. I mean, he is a confessional writer. <laughs> so you never know what a property owner will come up with, but uh, saying that Pereira, uh, taking on a major project for the biggest family in Southern California, who were his personal friends, who he had actually built a house for, that he didn't work on the project, was, was pretty funny. Okay, Kim. Um, we're, we're okay. We, we we have to talk about. I want to wrap up Times Square. Okay, I went and, and too long. No, but I no, you didn't. No, no, I, I, okay. So what I want to do is, we're we're looking at Plum Planning Land Use Management in about forty days. Um, Plum has to approve the Cultural Heritage Commission's nomination, so it can send it to full council for a vote, much like parliamentary procedure in this country. Um, committees focus on the hard questions, like the Judiciary Committee in the Senate focuses on the question, should Brett Kavanaugh be nominated? And, um, you know, Plum, Cultural Heritage Commission, says, yes, this is a good application. Plum looks at it from the lens Plum has, which is different than the cultural lens. Plum looks at it from a view of land, land use, taxes, revenue, of zoning, et cetera, et cetera. So, so we're really changing. So, Kim, what I want to do is I want you to begin to talk about this as a... So yeah. preservation in Los Angeles has really changed a lot in the last couple of years. And going and landmarking 
getting buildings nominated through the Cultural Heritage Commission have changed a lot very quickly. So what I really want you to do is I want you to tell people that you really have to be, it's a whole other set of arguments for PLUM than the CHC. And I really want to talk about what we're doing to get ready for PLUM. Because, and, and, and I really want everyone to hear me because everyone has to do this. You can't just, like, get ready for PLUM by reiterating your arguments for the Cultural Heritage Commission. Well, it's, it's very hard because our city council is a fairly impenetrable black box. It's yeah. hard to get the meetings. It's hard to know who they're listening to. I mean, clearly, if you look at policy across the city and you look at what the planning department does, it's obvious to anyone with a brain that a lot of what's done within the city is for the benefit of developers, a small percentage of which are local, um, vast majority of which have funds from outside the country and are based elsewhere. And you can't sit down with your council member if you're concerned about a project in his district where you happen to be a constituent and get a straight answer on yeah. where they're going to where they're going to fall all you can do is do the best you can to landmark things if you care about them a lot of people in the community are volunteering their time they're they're seeing others do it and they realize hey you know you can dedicate a bit of time a bit of uh, collaborative effort and this is not an impossible process you know and along the way you tell the story of a space and more and more people care about it it's happening right now with um well, a lot of buildings, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so, uh, but, but so, no, so I'm sorry. So, what happened at Plum is very troubling because last month, four separate landmark nominations that had been accepted by the Cultural Heritage Commission, which means that the commissioners who are experts and work really hard and spend a lot of time reading documents, touring sites, talking at these hearings, thinking, looking at the context of a space within the city, they don't, they don't landmark everything. And not everything even makes it to their committee because things are rejected all the time when they're submitted to the Office of Historic Resources. They're not strong enough. OHR will work with people. They'll send it back. A lot of times OHR will make a recommendation that something doesn't merit consideration as a landmark, and that's as far as it'll go. So the things that actually come out of these, these hearings that are accepted as landmarks they're, they're very, very solid nominations. And so it's very strange when four separate nominations come before Plum, having just come out of cultural heritage. And as is often the case, cultural heritage schedules, um, like for instance, the next hearing isn't going to be very contentious because they're almost all owner nominations. Yeah. So a bunch of people come in and say, I love my house. I hired somebody to write a report on why it's so important. And then all the commissioners say, we love touring your house and your dog was awesome. And we really agree that your building is very important and you're a landmark. Uh, that's fun. That's sweet. That's great. That's a tax write-off. We like it. Um, but in this case, four separate nominations, all accepted as landmarks, all of which had the potential to impede the development of the Crossroads of the World project, so-called, because it actually isn't part of Crossroads of the World. It's adjacent properties. Um, a lot of people who are in favor of this project say, oh, you should be happy that they're preserving Crossroads. Like, yeah, it's a National Register landmark. It's a city landmark. It's protected. I'm more concerned about the 80 rent-stabilized 1939 apartments that are getting knocked down for the high-rise. But Plum started arguing with the nominators about the cultural and historic value of these accepted landmarks. And that became the hearing, at which point after the, the commission, uh, 
the members of the committee who are council members started yelling about how they were sick of getting these crummy landmarks sent to them, they rejected all of them. It's highly political. It has nothing to do with what their job is. They do not have the qualifications to judge whether something is a landmark or not. That's done by the Cultural Heritage Commission. And it's scaring the hell out of preservation people, professional and amateur across the city, because it's not supposed to happen, and it's unquantifiable. I don't, I don't know if it's not supposed to happen, and I think that's the point of all of this, is there are many things city council can do which are legal. Have they ever done them before? No, they haven't. And, and that's what we're concerned about. But I, I, I did, Kim, want you to get to the point, and I'm going to try one more time for you to get to it. Tee me up. About plum and, and bringing a whole other set of criteria to the table, which you must do if you're going to go before plum. I'm not even going to do this, Richard, because okay. this, is, this is inside baseball. Okay. But I am going to do this. I'm going to remind people listening who care about Los Angeles, and this is something we heard from some of our colleagues who were there at the Cultural Heritage Commission when the commissioners voted to make all of, not just part of, Times Mirror Square a landmark. It, actually, they couldn't do that. It had to be all or nothing. Um, but we sat down with some very high-ranking former L.A. Times uh, employees, executives, and it was observed, you know, the Chandler family shaped Southern California, they shaped the politics of Los Angeles, they were very happy with the city government as it was installed, as it was shaped under their purview, because it was weak, and because they could send their hand-picked guy over to City Hall right across the street and have him put a thumbs up or a thumbs down in City Council, and the councilman and the mayor would make the rulings that the newspaper wanted. And then 18 years ago, they sold out and they split, and they left an incredibly weak city government that we all have to live with. The, it's well known and talked about, although no one does anything about it, the city council regularly votes unanimously across the board, which is almost certainly illegal. It's, it's mathematically impossible. You wonder what sort of discussions happen before Plum meets. You're, it's not supposed to be private discussions that happen among the commissioners, but and the committee, but, you know, it happens. And at the end of the day, this is the city we have to live in, and we have to ask if this is good enough. And if we're going to stand for people who are elected by maybe 1,100 people, maybe 11,000 people in a district, making determinations like this that have such long-term destructive effect as our infrastructure fails and homelessness spreads, and developers in many, many countries around the world Pocket the checks. Okay, Kim, thank you. So just a, cu a couple more. So um, very quickly, uh, a shout-out to our friend Peter Adam. Peter Adam, long-time Essatour fans may remember as the playwright uh, of the play Boys in the Backroom, oh, co-written yeah. with John Fonte's wife, Joyce, uh, staged by Movable Theater at the Altina Library back in 2012, I think. Yeah, 2012. 2013. Anyway, uh, Peter Adam, really important, interesting guy, uh, big Fonte person. He has a new novel out, uh, A New Day Yesterday. It's set in San Pedro. Uh, it's set in like 1972, 73. The, uh, it, so, I, I don't, I'm not going to give it away. I'm going to, you should read it. It's good. Um, the hook, why you should read it is that one of the characters in the novel is, of course, the neighborhood 
the now lost neighborhood of Beacon Street, the old red light district oh, yeah. of Long Beach. And it's it's oh, about Pedro. in San Pedro, I say Long Beach. San Pedro. God, forgive me. It's on Beacon the, the Beacon Street in so San it's Pedro. It's San Pedro. it's just so the the, the the novel takes place just as the CRA is is about to redevelop Beacon Street and, t- and it's it's set in this last weekend of oh. revelry uh, on on Beacon Street. Well, you know everyone wants to read that. So. Uh, just 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 a quick shout out on my end because uh, I know you want people to know, Richard. We got um, a, an email from the U.S. Department of State, and we were invited to participate in some citizen ambassador activities with this is the, something we did, right? the International Visitor Leadership Program. Right. Uh, there were journalists from 20 countries who are on a cultural exchange. They're traveling across America, and we met with them, and we talked to them about this podcast, and we talked to them about historic preservation and the work that we do to try to keep the stories of Los Angeles alive. And then we walked with them um, around the California Club, <laughs> which was a lot of fun. Everyone's always keen to see the California Club and uh, answered their questions about their experiences in L.A., which have been pretty interesting. Uh, had, had a long conversation about the homeless crisis and hearing about it through the eyes of someone who was visiting and didn't expect to see it and couldn't believe what is happening here. Uh, it's always eye-opening and refreshing and horrible, and I hope I did my best to uh, tell it where it is, but I, I enjoyed having that conversation. And as one of the journalists pointed out, so what we're hearing is sort of like a live podcast. And I had to agree. Yes, Richard, we are like this all the time. Uh, just very quickly, um, the final EIR environmental impact report for the uh, Division Twenty Portal Widening and Turnback Facility is out. That's a really long, complicated way of saying MTA is going to have to decide the fate of the Pickleworks building at, yeah, first in, at, at first in Santa Fe in the oh. Arts District, the 1888 Citizens Warehouse. Um, I've Original been, ground yeah. zero for the art community, yeah. loft space, beautiful inside. Uh, the EIR is out. Um, I read it. I don't understand what it means for the pickle works. Um, Carl Davis is away. He's going to come back next week. He, he's he's going to be making some statements once he gets back and 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 figures out what's what's going on. I know he's in touch with the MTA. So I'm just putting this on the table this month, and when we come back in October, um, we should have some definitive answers about the fate of the pickle works, which is a Super important building. All right, Kim, last closely watched train. The Lombardo family sold the Venice room. What? No. How could it be? Uh, So Monterey Park, one of the oldest bars, this incredible time capsule, 1950s era. 53. Yeah. Um, Sort of black light, Italian kitsch. Two room, one room's the bar with the karaoke. The other room is where you grill your own steak. No dancing. And you know what? A place you grill your own steak, you probably don't want any dancing. Things can go terribly wrong. Uh, it's it's a real hangout. And LATaco.com, which has been doing so much local coverage of great value, um, sent a reporter out there to just hang out with the regulars and talk to them about what it meant to them that after all these years, it was passing into hands that 
sad. They're not going to change anything, but how can that possibly be? Because things get changed. Uh, the old man died last year. Yeah, I know. You can do this. Okay, so so first of all, Dominic Lombardo is the oldest son. Joe Lombardo is the original owner. Moved his bar off of Pomona Boulevard, Pomona, which was consumed by the 60 Freeway. Uh, Pomona, just a couple, about a, a mile west. Uh, he heard the 60 Freeway was coming, and he purchased. Smart guy. Smart guy. Per- moved, left, gave up his lease, purchased this bar. Uh, his oldest son, Dominic, uh, his three sons own it. Joe passed about nine months ago. Uh, we know Dominic very well. Very together guy. Uh, attorney. He knows. Trust me. He sold it. He he didn't just like post something on a, on a real estate listing service and just take the first offer. I'm, I'm here to tell you, he and his brother Sal spent a lot of time talking to people. And, and made sure that, that the corporation that bought it is, is run by good people. So I, th- I, think, I think it's going to be okay. There's a lot of value to this place, and I, and I know the people that bought it understand that. And so we're just going to... Um, well, we don't eat meat, so um, we're not going to go back for a steak dinner, but, but we are going to keep them in, in their prayers and keep sending people there. And, you know, for a lot of years, we went there as part of our Boyle Heights and Monterey Park bus tour. And as that tour has evolved and changed, we've sort of run out of the time to do that. I'm glad we went as many times as we did. And I'm glad that they kept the bar going as as long as Mr. Lombardo was there. I mean, obviously, it was important for him to hold court. And that's really a a beautiful family story for a bunch of kids who've, you know... Their, their, their dad owned a bar. They all got great educations. They all run their own businesses, but they kept the bar going in order to have, a, you know, that, that third place, the place that isn't home, it isn't work. It's the place you want to be. I think it's really beautiful, and I hope that everybody can keep this uh, community alive. It's very, very special. Go down there, check it out, become part of the community, and then you can be one of the people complaining if it changes, which hopefully it will not. Good. Okay. Let's, let's get to the interview, so let's quickly... So I do that with the papers. <laughs> Let's quickly get through upcoming events. Um, our Lava Sunday Salon series is on hiatus. People have noticed this. Um, about 14, 15 months ago, Kim, you and I realized that, that the Times Mariscore project had to, we had to remove the last barriers um, because there was no more time, and, and we did. And uh, by February... Of this year, it had become painfully clear that that we needed to suspend the the, the Sunday monthly lava salons because we were just not going to have any time to devote to them. So March was our last one. We can't do everything. No, we can't. I don't want to. So so we haven't had any um, any any monthly lava salons. But, but you know, if you want to hang out with us, you can get on the bus, or you can come to our crime labs. Uh, we do them co- quarterly. Uh, we just gave one last week with oh, Poppy Grace is so great. Poppy Grace heads up the exoneration unit in the district attorney's office for the county of Los Angeles. One of the few ones in the country, and, yeah. and LA has exonerated two people so far. Yeah. So he's he, all right, so he's amazing. So we have one coming up uh, January, January twenty-seven, arson. So we're going to have um, Frank Girado. Uh, he has a new book out called Burned. He he co-wrote it. With John Orr's daughter, John Orr is the subject of the book. John Orr is the the most prolific arsonist in American history. And Lori, his daughter, is one of the people who got up and said, "My dad is a great person. Please don't give him the death penalty." 
as a young woman, and in years since she's had to come to terms with the crimes. And uh, it's a very, very interesting book, and one that really only, only I think, this particular pair of people yeah. could have written because, of course, Frank covered the crimes as, yeah, a, as no. a young crime reporter, and they touched him very personally. So, super interesting. And, and he, of course, was at the crime lab last week and, and got... You, you were like, oh, I, that was, like, really great. You were like, don't forget to talk. I, like, announced the lab, and you're like, Frank's in the room. I'm like, I know he's in the room. I'm about to ask. I was like, I'm about to ask. I was just about to ask him to stand up and talk about his <laughs> I book. I wanted to make sure you had him stand up and talked about his book. It was like, that was like a, that was like a, that was a great Kim and Richard moment where you, where you interrupted me and said, don't forget. Well, it was because he, I didn't have him on the list as a cop. He actually bought tickets, which was lovely. And so I didn't know that he'd been in touch with you. But I, we appreciate the support. They're fundraisers for the Criminalistics Graduate Department. And uh, everyone who comes helps to buy their DNA tests and send them to conferences. And the second speaker on that January 27th event is Ed Nordskog. Ed Nordskog just retired, like, couple months ago, very, very recently, from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. He was an ar- senior arson investigator, and he's going to talk about two cases that he adjudicated. Cold cases. Cold cases uh, that he adjudicated, like, within the last few months. So these were, like, the last cases he worked on as an investigator. And this is going to be pretty heavy, um, yeah. because these are burned body cases. If that freaks you out, but you still would like to come to the Frank Girardeau and, and Laurie Orr section, you can do that, and you can you can only attend half. Just a warning there. Ar- yeah, I, arson, I, I, sometimes it's buildings, sometimes it's people. Yeah, no, this, uh, Ed's, ta- Ed's going to talk first. He's going to take the first 90 minutes, so 12 to one thirty, and then we'll have the coffee break and the breakout labs, and then Frank and... Anyway. Ask us questions. Okay, uh, my birth. Can ask us questions? We're on a podcast. They can. Se- we have a feedback loop. Oh right. Okay. Yeah, right. Come on, right, Kim. Right, right. Come. Okay. So birthday bus. Okay. So we're we're about to get into the interview sections. Um, Zuha and Aaron, and of course, Aaron's interview is about her exhibition, which opens next week. And of course, her exhibition is the subject of my fiftieth birthday bus, which of course she is guest hosting. I'm going to be fifty. I just got into the New York Times with. Three months to spare, Baruch Hashem. So, so my birthday bus is coming up. I think as of the moment we're recording this, and it will take about 48 hours to push it out into the world in the last day or two of September of 2018, as of this moment, there are like two seats left? Four. Four seats left. Okay. So, okay, there you go. So, there you go, birthday bus. Um, let's... Let me get my notes here. Okay, yeah, let's, so let's get to the podcast. Kim, is there anything we're for, uh, you want Upcoming to say? Events? Yeah, we just did that. Upcoming events. Oh, oh right, yeah, we did. Yeah, okay, did yeah, I did that. I forgot, you go through all the uh, Yeah, it seems like we haven't done one of these in a while, because you, you, you go to the Cultural Heritage Commission, and, like, time grinds to a bizarre halt, and, and you sit there in the moment, and you, you look up at all of those pictures of the mayors up at the top of the building, and you just feel like, is this really happening? Is it 1919? Where are the Chandlers? And then you, you know, sit down and record another podcast and you say something stupid like I just did. Okay, Kim. Let's get to the interview. So, so we're going we're gonna to interview... So our first interview is with Zuha, the Zen master, and our second one is with Aaron Chase. So I will introduce Aaron Chase first. Okay, so let me put my glasses. Sorry, take, took my... You mean Aaron Chase, the, the most stylish curator that we know? I think so. I always like how she dresses. She's she's very cool. If you want to get on the bus, you'll see for yourself. I'm 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 a big fan of Aaron's. Yes. I, okay, uh, it's and it's her birthday 
tomorrow. Oh, so 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 this will come out. Wait, uh, I think this is going to come out actually on her birthday. Yeah, so that'll be nice. Okay, so Aaron Aaron Chase, assistant curator of architecture and photography at the Huntington. Um, she she worked under Alan Jutsey. Alan Jutsey is this incredibly important curator at the Huntington. He has a fellowship in his name, which he endowed upon his retirement. For independent about, scholars, yeah. our favorite thing. And, and our friend Linnell George, I believe, just received the most recent fellowship for that for 2018. Um, Alan Jutsey is incredibly important. I don't have time to get into Alan Jutsey. We will. Um, we are starting a series of podcast interviews with former curators at the Huntington. I don't just mean we're going to go talk to Alan, because that's pretty easy to do. I mean, we're consciously we're, seeking we're, out we're former... We're consciously seeking out retired curators from the Huntington. Deep bench. De- I, super excited. Okay, yes. Aaron is a current curator, and we hope a curator for a very, 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 very long time. I don't mean to talk about past curators and intimate anything. Um, she studied <laughs> under Alan. That's where we... So, at, okay. All right, let's talk about Erin and her show. So, so Erin's show opens October 6th. It runs through January 21, 2019, so that's a good run. Um, it's The title of the exhibit is uh, The Huntington Southern California Architecture Collection... Uh, the exhibition title is <laughs> Architects of a Golden Age, Highlights from the Huntington Southern California Architecture Collection. So she has f- curated a collection of really wonderful architectural drawings from the 1920s. Um, Wallace Neff, uh, Morgan Walls and Clements, um, the Parkinsons, uh, just a really great collection. And some extraordinary neon studies for New Chinatown, which are produced with airbrush, and some of those beautiful things you've ever seen. I mean, these drawings, well, I guess they're paintings, really. I mean, they, yeah, they truly look like neon at night. It's an incredible lost art form that I hope uh, someone who makes neon now will see and, and, and recreate, because they're very powerful. Good, yeah. So um, we're going to talk to her. So, and, and, and really, one of the great motivators behind Aaron's, Aaron's work in general, and for this exhibit in particular, is to encourage preservationists to use the archive. Okay, um, I don't think any of the buildings displayed are in danger at the moment, but this, this collection represents a small fraction of, of their holdings, and so the point of all of this is the Huntington is a resource. And this is something that is not widely known. The Huntington has kind of been locked up tight for a long time. It took us years to be able to get our reader cards. But the culture it, has... It, 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 it took three months from the moment we applied. It just... It but was, we didn't as, apply until we knew that the culture was changing. Because when we first sort of inquired, as independent scholars, even though we have good educations and degrees and books, uh, it was just it was hard. Uh, it, it wasn't, it, it was, I'm sure it would have been possible if we'd pressed hard, but it wasn't easy, and so we went and did other things. But the culture has changed, and I really want people to hear that. Independent scholars are getting funds directly from the Huntington Alan, to be Alan there, Jutsi. the Alan Jutsey Fellowship. And day passes are an option. We've brought people down there who are doing really groundbreaking work as independent scholars. And if you 
are landmarking a house, if you are researching a property, if you are really curious about some aspect of Southern California history and you have a deep passion and you know how to hold a book properly, perhaps the Huntington is a place for you to go do some work. So that's what we want you to hear, and that's what Aaron wants to tell you. Yes, and I think just, I, I, you know, I, 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 th- I think I'm... I'm going to reiterate because I think Thea is probably listening to this and like holding her pen really tight. You know, it, it the the cult, yeah, the, the Huntington I think is is really looking to bring people from outside academia to use their resources and and this this particular front that that the collection Aaron Aaron curates offers is is really appealing to them and to everyone because it's. People need to go to the Huntington and do the research to landmark these buildings. It's a tremendous resource. Do not think, oh, no, I can't go there. That's just not true. I mean, if it isn't obvious, you know, we love hearing from people who are passionate about local history and are working on something. So if this is appealing to you and you're a little bit intimidated, send us an email. Tell us what you're curious about. Tell us what at the Huntington you think would be helpful. And then we'll meet you down there on the day that you get your your pass, and we'll just kind of walk you through the steps. And we want to know what you're working on, and I know you want to tell us. So there you go. And so, so that's a perfect way to segue into our first interview. So if you, if you do get a day pass to the Huntington, and it is the last Tuesday of the month, and you reach out to us, you can, you can attend Zazen class with me. Zazen is um, a form of Zen Buddhist meditation. And I st- uh, so I, I was so excited when uh, last this last December, December 2017, I got my monthly email for readers, and it said that uh, Yokoyama Roshi of the Fuso Zen Institute was going to be starting a monthly Zazen class at the Huntington. Immediately got onto that list. Really, immediately just made sure there was room for me. And I've been attending, and so to now our, our first interview is with, is with Zuha Roshi. Zuha is a uh, a sixth generation Zen master. He's he's friends with Yokoyama Roshi. Uh, Yokoyama. How many, how many th- centuries ago is eighty six? That's a long time. Oh my goodness. So. So, so I've been working ev- on my genealogy. I'm like six generations back, and I'm like, this is awesome. Yeah, wow. 80, 86 generations is a long time. So, so every month when I go to Zazen class at the Huntington, Yokoyama Roshi teaches it, and, and Zuha Roshi travels, and every three or four months it seems like he shows up to class and, and, and talks, and he's amazing, and that's who I'm interviewing today. So, so when we're talking about meditation class, you have to be a reader or a member to get in to class. So you can't just show up. So I'm just like putting that out there. So that's ins- focus, inspiration for everyone. So, all right. So let me uh, so let me set this up. So so Zuha Roshi and I are going to talk about Zen and music and the empty mind. Okay. I think um, I, I've, I've endeavored to sort of do vocabulary words at the beginning of this interview. So I'm not I don't need to do that now. I think I think all the sort of uh e- eastern words that we use, we put on the table early so you're sort of used to them. Um really this is about zen as an experience. And I think I I, th- I think I think I'm going to leave it at that. Um Zuha is just, he's so he's so amazing. We're going to um start the interview starts so as we go into this right now, you're gonna you're gonna hear the the the, the little bell, Ding. and then we're gonna close with him chanting, and um, 
I got to tell you, it's an experience. You just you just have to meditate to under you can you can talk about it and we talk about that. But uh, yeah, uh, Kim, I guess what 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 I will do because it's impossible to talk about the empty mind. What I will do is is quickly talk about the space around our lives when I go to Zazen. So why don't you give us? So it's Tuesday. It's twelve fifteen. We're pulling into the parking lot. I'm like making sure that. And I'm wearing my, my, my meditation pants and not normal khakis because I can't meditate in them. And I'm, like, changing shoes and, and... Well, I'm going into the stacks to look at books because you want to empty your mind and I want to fill my mind. And uh, the Huntington has two really great ways of doing research. One is you can pull manuscripts, rare items, and they come out of the cold storage, and sometimes they take a couple days to warm up until you can use them and you read them uh, in a, a very public reading room while you're being watched by wonderful security-minded clerks, and you're surrounded by scholars, and it's lovely, and the, and the Shakespeare sideboard is there beside you, blowing your mind, an incredible piece of furniture. And you can also, if you're me, just go deep into the basements, which are filled with really weird books that are also incredibly rare, but not so rare that you can't just take them off the shelves. So, Richard, while you're emptying your mind, I'm filling mine with just random wonderful things that I find on the shelves, and it's always amazing. And, and this ties into the empty mind, because I want you to describe the experience of actually not being plugged in to the Internet and just reading a book for five or six hours straight in a bunker. Oh, yeah, there's no cell service down there. It's great. And <laughs> and everything's just, it's just pure, you know? And a lot of the books smell really great. And, uh, you know, spending time with them is like the world before everything became so instantaneous. And I, I like going back there. And I like thinking about all the people who've been there before. There's a wonderful long tradition of scholars using the books down in the stacks. And uh, you never know who was the last person to pick one of these up. It might have been quite a long time ago. Perfect. Okay, so we've gotten totally sidetracked. Uh, before we start our interview with Zuha, I just I want to talk about the Fusha, Fusha Zen Institute. Oh, no, I, I think it's important because if people think they're going to go to Zen meditation with me, you're, you're not. <laughs> That's right. You have to hang out with Richard. Yeah, you're gonna have to hang out with me. So, 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 that their zazen hours, their sitting hours, daily hours are are dynamic right now because they just literally just opened their doors like a month ago. So um, on the website page for this podcast episode, I'm going to put all the URLs up. So you can be an early adopter. Yes, um, they they're doing they're in the midst of several events uh, with Zuha. I think they're all going to be over by the time, or most of them are going to be over by the time we air this. But I think there'll be one left. You can catch that. Um, but just go to the website, sign up for the mailing list. Uh, get figure out how to get to the Huntington so you can attend class um, with Roshi at the Huntington, or you can just do a, a sitting, a, a zazen sitting um, at the Institute in Pasadena. But I just I really encourage you to just plug into this. It's just it's so important. So so let's let's take it away with this interview with Zuha Roshi, the 
an 86th generation Zen master who uses music as a tool to help understand and realize the human potential. Suha, Suha, I'm here with you. We're at the Huntington Library and Gardens. Um, in about 45 minutes, we're going to go into into zazen. That's a Japanese. That's a Zen meditation class, which you are part of. And I was hoping you could just briefly and quickly introduce yourself. You 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 are a Zen master, so I was hoping you could just give us your 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 proper title. Yes, I am a Zen master from Hawaii. I'm an ordained priest, and I've been. Um, ordained for about maybe 15, 16 years. Perfect, okay. So, uh, I, st- I study here, I study with uh, Yoko- Yokoyama Roshi, and this is a monthly Zazen class that is offered through the Huntington Library and Gardens to the readers and members, and wow, it's, cha- it's like an amazing experience. So I'm so happy to be interviewing you. Uh, you, you pop in and out of you come in and out of focus to the class when you're in town. So uh, we're happy and fortunate to have you today. So we're going to talk about Zen music. We're going to talk about Zen music and the empty mind. And this is, of course, intrinsic to the... The, the, the empty mind is and music, Zen music, is intrinsic to the practice of Zazen. So let's just... Um, got my notes here. Um, let's... I'm going to start by telling people what Zen music is not, and then you're going to spend a good amount of time telling us what Zen music is, okay? So, so when we talk about Western music, we're like listening to the radio, we're driving in the car, we're washing the, di- whatever, we're cleaning the house, and the DJ puts on a song that goes out just to Candace, and you're like, oh, that's so great. You know, and like you think about all these things, or you think about your high school graduation, or that camping trip you took in ninth grade, and like music has all these associations. This is not what Zen music is about at all. Right. Right. So, that said, let's um, let's let's start with then with with what Zen music is, and I guess I guess you want to start with the talking about the Zen shakuhachi. And we'll just sort of use that as a way to walk walk into it. Okay, we can. Um, the shakuhachi actually is uh, um, when you listen to um, a Zen master or somebody in the state empty, state of empty mind playing the shakuhachi. That's what's transmitted. You know, very simply stated. The, the sh- you need to tell us what the shakuhachi is. Okay, so <laughs> the shakuhachi is a bamboo flute, a wooden flute, um, from Japan. Um, originated in China, but it's um, been kind of, um, you can say, perfected or yeah, adapt, adapted in Japan. Um, actually, the whole flow to understand, I guess, what Zen Shakuhachi is about is um, to refer, the best way, I think, is to refer to the wh- why we're doing this Zen and music um, relationship. Um, one of the 
you know, I guess innovative ideas that Yokoya Maroshi and, you know, I'm supporting and encouraging is to use music to see what this empty mind is all about. Because that's really where the understanding, uh, misunderstanding and misconceptions come. So to understand the Zen Shakuhachi, you have to know, kind of referring to what you, how you introduced it, that <clears throat> really the music really carries you away. And, you know, what is that or when does the music really exist or what is music really? The mu um, by looking at music directly, you can understand, I guess, your habit of mind. So <clears throat> the points that you make about hearing a song and going back into time and having memories and all of that, that's the working of the conscious mind. When you yes. think about music, actually, there's only now, okay? Right. Right. And so when we say now, you know, what do we mean by that? So if you hear a piece of music, you think, well, first is, what is music, right? You say, well, it's a, let's take the most basic thing about music, which is the melody. And so we listen to the notes of the mel um, the notes of the melody of the song being sung, and we think that it's you know it's there. But really, where is the song? Right. Let me let me interrupt you. Pom 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 pom. Right. And when is that pom 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 pom? When does Beethoven's Fifth exist? Right. Actually, okay. When you think about it, <clears throat> you know carefully. Right. The sound that you hear is just pure vibration. And that's really what you're responding to. Anything beyond the vibration that's occurring now, 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 you're creating by yourself. That's why, again, like what you referred to, reflecting back on your memory, it becomes problematic because you get away from the vibration. And pretty soon, all of these um, things, the thoughts that come into your mind, start to uh, create a different kind of reality. So you get lost in that reality, and you lose your... Presence, I guess, is the best way to okay, say it. Perfect. We're in a really good place, and I want to linger here and have you explore it a bit more. Let's go back to Beethoven's Fifth. Bum, 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 bum. I'm listening to the note before. I've processed the note before, and I'm anticipating, because that's what Western music composers do. They anticipate what you're going to feel for a closure. You, a flat note gives you, sort of leaves you hanging. And, and other notes complete it. And that's the opposite of what we're talking about, right? Right, right. So <clears throat> going back to, relating it back to the shakuhachi, which you were talking about, the way um, the shakuhachi player performs his music is his state of concentration and being is now, 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 without any anticipation or um, calculation of creating something, some kind of image uh, in your mind. So... When you think about Western music, it's actually based on an attachment or yes. it wants your mind to get stuck on a particular idea, thought, or emotion, something like that. So, <clears throat> because of that, you know, the notes are constructed to kind of entice you and lead you away from, from now. Which is not a, necessarily a bad thing, but to get caught in thinking that that's the true reality, that, that's really not the case because the memories and all of that, they're all in the past. So you're creating that with your mind. Okay, so let's, let's shift, let's stay, f uh, I, I want to stay, f okay, we're going to make this leap, we talked about it. I want to jump from the Zen Shakuhachi musician to the Western conductor, the conductor of a symphony. And, and we're just, we're, we're just going to, and this is going to allow us 
to sort of talk around the idea of empty mind and samadhi. Okay? And there's no particular order that I want you to deal with this, but I just, I think we, we agreed that was a good ledge to, to take a break on and, and build a base camp. Right, okay, so the Western, Western conductor, you can say, right, has the responsibility of um, bringing the musicians into one mind. Right. So the way he, um, the energy he creates and the way he conducts the music, um, if he's stuck on his idea, right, and he creates another attachment for the musicians. Um, one one good case in point would be um, Wilhelm Furtwängler, who's a famous German conductor, yes. Yes. right. So if you listen to, you know, a lot of his recordings, he's known to be such a powerful and influential conductor, great one of the greatest conductors around. And why was he so great? Because when he conducted his music, he became the music. Totally, and he wasn't trying to conjure up anything with his head. So, because his whole being was the music, you know, it was transmitted to his musicians. That's why his musicians, somehow, as strong a character as he was, they loved him, you know, so much. And the power of his music in the, um, you can say, the audience members, there's testimonies that, you know, when he, when his orchestras performed, they were, he took their breath away. You know, because he put them actually in that state of samadhi, you can say. Okay, good. So, you said the word. You right. said samadhi. So, I'm going to interrupt you. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna take a breath. I want you, in the context of the empty mind, which is the point of zazen, okay. zen meditation, right. I want you to try and give us a sense, in less than one minute, of samadhi, this state that you've just described a Western conductor getting into. I want you to go back to Zen music okay. now and the empty mind and samadhi. Okay. Um, to understand samadhi and the empty mind, right, you have to look at your conscious mind first. You have to uh, realize, I guess you can say, what the habit of mind is. What is the conscious mind? The conscious mind is the mind that attaches to things. Yeah. yeah? So, just like how you would attach to the notes of a melody, the sequence yeah. of a notes, you cre to create a melody when actually the sound is just here and now, here and now, here and now. So that's the conscious mind, the mind that attaches and dwell or dwells on things, right? So. The empty mind is the mind that does not attach or dwell. So when we normally think of empty, you think of something that was here at one time, like a cup of water was full of water and then now it's empty, so it's void of things. But actually from the Zen point of view and the empty mind, the emptiness we talk about is that the mind actually doesn't stop or attach on anything. You can say that when the mind dwells on something, there, you know, uh, there's something in it. Okay? There's something in the mind. So when the mind does not attach to anything, that's in it. That's the empty mind. If you can say it's the fluid mind or the flowing mind. Okay. Now that condition of samadhi um, comes about when you can deepen your activity in the empty mind um, to such a degree of concentration that there's a breakthrough. And it's a mind and body experience that occurs. Now, going back to what, what it is to describe it, like I was saying, Furt Wangler, you know, was in Samadhi when he conducted, 
and then that transmitted through his musicians. That samadhi is, um, we call it jizamai, or small samadhi, or conditional samadhi. Only when he's in the act of music, you know, was he able to attain that. So it's like that, but it's not limit to just the activity. Right. So the samadhi we're looking for is one of your total being. Right, and just just to give some of you listening that have no idea what samadhi is outside of an intellectual idea, it is, for, for, for me and, and others that I've, I've spoken with this briefly, you know, you, 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 you have a, everything is brighter. I've, I've only experienced samadhi several times while meditating, but everything is brighter. Um, you sort of feel like everything you're looking at, you're sort of outside of it a bit. Um, everything is clearer. It's, it's just, you sort of like pop out. You just sort of feel like yeah, the, the windows have been cleaned and um, you're just a lot more focused. And that's, of course, only the beginning of, of, of this state. But I just, I just want to say that for those listening that are like desperately looking to understand what that first foothold is that that they can look for, which is of course bad practice in meditation. <laughs> you should you should you should not look for anything. So so you know you can say like the things that you notice in somebody, right? That's the that, working that, of the. It immediately refers exactly. back to your conscious right. mind. So that so that's that screws you up, right? You're right. not supposed to think about oh, I'm in samadhi. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and let me interject yeah, one yeah. thing, right? So the thing to realize is that. The Zen experience is not something that's purely intellectual. So it's more right. of a direct, a whole total being experience yes. that you're after. Right. And that's where the meditation and the concentration where you can bring your, you know, yourself to oneness, you can say, is so become so important. So let's take this idea that, that Zen is not an intellectual pursuit, which it isn't, and let's go back to the, the Zen Shakuhachi player because that is an okay. indiv- that, that, that is we can, we can talk about this for 12 hours we can do, <laughs> we can do workshops for 5 years but, but what is happening as a Zen Shakuhachi player is an experience right? it has nothing to do with the mind right, okay, so um, I guess we, the easiest way maybe to understand would be to go back to the mechanics maybe, right, yes. and the, the, the whole I, um I guess you can say tradition of the Zen Shakuhachi started with this sec- subsect of Zen called Fuke Sek. Okay. okay, and they did not sit and meditate. Rather than that, they played the Shakuhachi. So they practiced a thing called Sui Zen or blowing Zen. Now, the breath is very important in the Zen, the practice of Zen. Okay, and why is it so important? Because when your breath, you can concentrate your breath down into your Lower abdomen your, area, your, right? Your, ha- your hara. hara. That's what your hara, as you call it, right? So when you can do that, something um, almost phenomenal happens to your consciousness, right? So it's nothing mystical or, um, I'll say, airy fairy about it, right? It's a it's a reality of things, right? So when you can deepen your breath and breathe correctly with the correct posture, then your frame of mind will change along with that yeah. development of your breath. So the, in the sh- practice of the shakuhachi, right, they concentrated on blowing and blowing and blowing. So their practice was just to um, play the repertoire, just, but, and just you know, 
play. And that was their method of um, training in Zen. So they wanted to, I guess you can say, express and realize what cannot be communicated yes. because Zen is about experience, right? It's a direct or pure experience yes. rather than, you know, understanding something from the outside. Right. So to jump right into it, right, you got to get into the first, the first step would be to get into the breathing, which is what you do, right? Yeah. <laughs> so let's, okay, this is great. So let's, let's wrap this up. We have one more question that we're going to end with about music and its existence. So let's, let's go back. Let me just sort of wrap up the experience of Zen. So I've, I've often thought of Zen as the record that breaks the record player, right? You have this record player. <laughs> and 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 there are records that will break. You play that. You put the needle down on the record, and it breaks the record player. And I think that's to a large degree what what Zen masters are talking about. You want to shatter your conscious mind. The breaking the record player will create will have will bring you to the empty mind. Right. Yeah. So the the thing to understand too about that what you're saying about breaking through and all of that, you don't become separate from right. the present world like that. It, it's almost like you get a bigger perspective yeah beyond we say dualism right the up and down yes yeah. and no yeah. this and that that's which is the working of the conscious mind right? right the discriminating mind so let's then end with this question so we've just talked about what the conscious mind does the conscious mind makes us and everything else separate right it separates us from everything else now 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 right we've been talking about that when do you, when did you get to work well, when I got to work, it was now. When did you get up to go to work? Well, when I got up to go to work, it was now. Everything is now, 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 now. There's another time. There's, there's, there's the past. There's the future. Where does music exist? Really, where does music exist? So if you're listening to the radio or stereo system, you know, you might say, well, it's coming from my CD player or my radio and all of that. But really, again, when you hear the notes of you know, the song, all you're hearing is the vibration, you're experiencing the vibration that's occurring now, 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 now. Anything else beyond that you're creating with your mind. So, yeah, so that simple, you can say, um, act of referring or creating that melody, right, is like an indication of the, you can say, the power of the conscious mind. There's nothing wrong with the conscious mind, right? But, right, to be stuck and to think that the world you create with your conscious mind is the true reality becomes problematic because then your reality, your consciousness, what you perceive through your consciousness and what I perceive from my consciousness will be totally different because your experience is totally different from mine and the way you see things, totally different from mine. So the whole idea is to break through all of that, right? Break through all of that and see things as they you know, really are. That's why the only way to do it, you cannot study, read about it. You have to really get into it, get into the, um, you can say, the flow of existence. And the way you do it is through a direct experience, understanding what a pure and a direct experience is. Music is about pure and direct experience. It hits you and then you begin to create everything. And that's, that's where the problem is. So you have to concentrate on your, we all have to concentrate on our breathing to kind of get us back to realizing what, you know, the reality really is. So, uh, you're, this is amazing. This is so great. I want to take a second. I want to tell everyone 
about um, the Fusho Zen Institute, which is the institute offering these Zazen classes at the Huntington. Um, but I just want to make sure when we when we're, we're about to wrap up, you're, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna play for us. I, I, I maybe you're I, just okay, but we'll we'll wrap with that. But I just want to take a second. So so um, I am studying with Yokoyama Roshi at the Huntington once a month. Uh, last Tuesday of the month. Uh, he is the he is the, the Fusho Zen Institute. He is he runs you they're in Pasadena. They're just uh, a little southwest of the Rose Bowl, about a mile. Uh, they have Zazen sittings in the morning and I think they're they're thinking about having some in the evenings. You need to look at their website, which is on our website page for this podcast episode. So I'm not making any canonical statements about Zazen sittings at the mm-hmm. Institute. Just go to the webpage. Link all their links are there. Um, I attend this class at the Huntington on the last Tuesdays. This is for readers and members, so this is um, can't just show up. But uh, you should definitely all become members. Everyone listening, if you're not a member of the Huntington, it's a totally amazing experience. So, so that having gotten that that out of the way, and I know that you have to get ready for class, which is coming up. I want I want to wrap up this podcast with with a little, just one one more musical episode. Okay, can I explain something yeah, really yeah, fast yeah, about yeah, this? Yeah. What I'm going to do? Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. going to be like a, a, you know, a short section of a chant, and you have to remember that the chant is not about praying to something or any particular idea, but it's about getting into that state. It's a concentration on the breath using sound. Okay. okay. <laughs> Chico My name is Alan Hess. I'm here in the Seaview Track in Palos Verdes, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. Aaron, Aaron, I'm here with you. We're at the Huntington. We're by the fountain. And I want you to properly introduce yourself with your title. Sure. I'm Erin Chase. I'm Assistant Curator of Architecture and Photography at the Huntington. Good. And we are here to talk to you today about your upcoming exhibit, which you're also hosting a bus tour about for my birthday. So tell us about the exhibit. Tell us its title and when it opens and the length of its run. Sure. So it's Architects of a Golden Age, highlights from the Huntington Southern California Architecture Collection, and it will open October 6th, 2018, and run through January 19th, 2019. And this is a small show in the West Hall, just adjacent to the main hall at the Huntington, and it will highlight um, some of the best works, most diverse grouping of works I could come up with that would feature um, objects from our Southern California art architecture collections. 
Perfect. And this is this, uh, this is such a great show. This episode, this interview, we're going to air this episode about a week before your show opens, so people can just get excited. They, they, they you'll have time to come up to speed. We just we just talked to Thea mm-hmm. Page and the press openings tomorrow. So that's so you're 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 getting ready. So tell us before we roll up our sleeves and jump into the deep end of this exhibit about who, what, where, when, and why. Mm-hmm. Tell us tell us what you're most excited. When when people come to the show, what should they look for first? I think they are going to be struck by the magnitude of some of these drawings. Um, when a visitor walks in, they will most likely be drawn to. A six-foot-wide rendering we have of Arthur Lett's residence in what in the Holmby Hills area. Um, it's really, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a great it's guy. really yeah. stunning. And I'm sorry, it's Holmby House. It's actually in what's now Los Feliz. Um, he had 60 acres in Los Feliz, part of Los Angeles, and it's kind of a funny, almost folk art type rendering. It's an a uh, collection of a German architectural or landscape architect, and um, it's a painting. So it really foregrounds the plant materials and then puts this massive mansion in this sort of minuscule place at the center sort of distance um, view, which makes it really, really interesting. Beautiful. And so uh, before we get into, again, the, the deep end, just give us give us a most cursory sort of overview of, of who who and what is featured in this amazing exhibition. So we have some better known architects um, from the areas such as Wallace Neff and Styles Clements um, and Earl Wilson and or sorry Adrian Wilson and Earl Webster, um, and then we have some lesser known architects. But I would put all of them sort of in the same category in terms of sort of defining what we know to be Southern California and the way we see Los Angeles during this golden age period, which would be roughly 1920 to 1940, prior to World War II. Okay, perfect. All right, now let's get, uh, let's, here, let's just, um, this is, this show, one of the reasons you're so excited is this show is a little different than your standard out-of-the-box Huntington Exhibit. So why don't you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, it's, well, it's, first of all, we're going to be showcasing a collection that's been hidden for decades for the most part. Um, we have had two shows on architects here, one on Wallace Neff and one on Florence Yock and Lucille Council, but those were decades ago, and this would be the first ever show which would highlight the architecture collections and will show materials that most people aren't aware that we collect. So it will be most things will be hung on the walls, so it will, um, there, lots of them are artist renderings or architect renderings, so it'll be different than the book and manuscript shows that we typically do in that space. Okay, perfect, and also, um, I remember, uh, we were talking about this, you put the status of a building yes. in, in the display cards. Yes, I, th- I thought it was important, because this is sort of the 40th anniversary of the launch of the Los Angeles Conservancy and the Pasadena, Pasadena Heritage, um, that it would be important to note that, you know, the collection came to be as a simple act of preservation. And so we thought that it would be important to also note whether or not a building is, still exists, if it has any cultural heritage status, and those will all be included in the exhibition labels. Perfect. Um, just to get back to this, sort of the, mo- the motivations behind this exhibit. So 
this this falls in uh, the bigger bucket, which is showcasing lesser-known collections at the Huntington, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Yes. So let's talk about under you, what's what's under your ages. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about collections. I want to get back to the collections that are in the show, but just in general, um, what are some collections that you really want people to know about that you hope get people to come to the Huntington to look in, in, in your archives? I, I, it's important that people know that we have this material. Um, there are no safe buildings here. And so the more we put it out there that people understand that there are historical resources here, primary source resources that are available, then, then I've achieved what I want to do. I think it's important yeah. for people to know that, that we are a place they can come if they're concerned about a specific building that perhaps we hold any sort of papers or, you know, renderings, correspondence, th- that those are open, that, that I want to take those calls and I want people to know that we have it. Right. And just, you know, I can't speak, I, I, this is just a very abstract statement I'm about to make, but if there's a building out there and it's, there are documents in, in the collection here about it, you can write an HCM application, most likely. I mean, like in the in the abstract, there's yeah. good 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 documentation is nine tenths of the battle of a historic cultural monument application. So yeah, this so is great. this is great. So let's then jump back into the exhibit. Let's go through. Oh wait, we get back one last step. Um, digitization mm-hmm. of these images. Mm-hmm. Do you just want to talk briefly about getting out into the inter- uh, onto the web? images from this collection through your channel? Yeah, I, well, I think it's important for people to know that, um, you know, one of the questions that I get asked constantly is, why don't you just digitize everything? And I think people don't understand that the very act of digitizing a large drawing, let's say something that's been rolled up for decades, is cumbersome and can, you know, put unnecessary wear and tear on on the object, and so we're very careful about what we choose to digitize, but we certainly will digitize and have digitized everything that's in this show, um, and we are constantly trying to get more there or onto the Huntington's digital library so that people can see what we have and have access, open access to all of that content. Perfect. All right, let's, let's the rubber's going to hit the road. Let's go through the list of collections which make up this show. Let's start. I'll, I'll, I'll get you started. I know you don't need any help. The Hong, the, the, the Hong Papers, the right? Hong so let's talk about the Hong Papers. Sure. Well, the Hong Papers came from Roger Hong, who was the son of Y.C. Hong, who was part of the coalition of Chinese Americans who uh, rebuilt Chinatown after the original Chinatown was taken by eminent domain. And so we've got um, some papers related to New Chinatown, which Y.C. was, as I just said, um, one of the people to help that move along and so um, there's a manuscript component but we also have these architectural renderings which are in the show perfect uh, and uh, Florence, Florence Yauch Florence Yauch and Lucille oh, Council uh. that's okay Florence, Florence was a very prolific ar- landscape architect here in Pasadena and in um, sort of the west part of Los Angeles yeah. and also Santa Barbara and um, she was known for doing residential gardens, but also for doing film sets. So she and Lucille were commissioned to do the sort of plant material parts of film sets, like How Green Was My Valley and The Garden of Allah and Romeo and Juliet and uh, Gone with the Wind, our favorite Depression-era entertainment. 
Uh, they're amazing. Uh, they're also featured in one of my favorite novels, Linden Off. Linden off the Saugus Branch, which was a novel I found while living in the Middle West in a thrift store. Really? Yeah, it, I'll, I'll, I, I meant to bring it to you. I'll, I'll, I'll okay, send, send it I to you. I know a novel about the two of them. Uh, also, really also the uh, the John, the Parley Johnson residence mm-hmm. in Downey. The yes. Florence was the landscape architect for. Yes, that's right. And I, was Reginald Johnson the architect? Uh, no. Um, Roland Coates. Roland Coates. Okay. 1927. Yeah, 1927. And I mention that because of the Downey Assistance League. Uh, Parley's wife, Gypsy, gave the building to the Downey Assistance League, and it's open for tours. So, so Florence's work is not necessarily public. Uh, right. it, it, these are all still privately owned homes right. that still exist and people don't want you coming over for brunch and walking through their gardens. No, they don't. But the Downey Assistance League opens this house several times a year. And well, the gardens are relatively year. intact. That that would be that's a really interesting one. So I can say that we have some of their original designs for the Parley Johnson estate and it would be fun to take a look at those and then Maybe another tour is in your future. Mm-hmm. Oh, we can yeah. do that, and oh, then we yeah. can actually look at the landscape. That's why landscape architects' papers are so important. Landscapes, of course, usually over time change for a variety of reasons. So to have those primary sources is really important. I love it. Okay, let's keep going. Um, Neff. Wal- Walter, Walter Neff? Wallace Neff. Wallace. Wallace Neff, our beloved regional architect, one of the kind of early Spanish colonial architects in the area. We have his papers. And um, Neff, is, Neff is really important because he was one of several, I would say, architects who sort of changed with the times. And as many gorgeous, ornate, and lavish mansions as he built in the 20s and 30s, he was equally interested in coming up with housing solutions for right. people who did not have money. Right. So his air form construction was was a very innovative idea that never totally took off in this country, but I do have an example of it in the show.